<laughs> Welcome on in. Broken up and shattered. <laughs> it's your boy KB coming at you all the way live from my soul renegade sound studios here in Minneapolis. I am welcoming you to the Ken Valdez Approach. My friends, if you are not familiar with the name Chris Duarte, you need to get yourself familiar real quick. He is considered to be one of the greatest guitar players alive. He is incredible. This guy has taken blues rock guitar into the stratosphere. His style is so unique. This guy combines rock and blues and jazz and just straight up alien type stuff into his music. I'm convinced. He says he's from San Antonio, man. I think that he's from Mars. He's he's that kind of guitar player. He's incredible. Plus, his live shows are always an experience. They're, they're, they're great. I've known Chris now for well over 20 years. He and I have traveled thousands upon thousands upon thousands of miles together, have done many, many shows. Hey, man, he was even on my Soul Renegade record on the song Sugar Shaking Boogaloo, and he put on a clinic. He's also one of the people that I consider to be a near and dear friend. I think the world of him. He's also the hardest working guy in this business. The biggest road dog I have ever met in my life. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, let me introduce you to my friend Chris Duarte. I hope you enjoy the conversation here on The Approach. All right. Well, I am here with my guy, Chris Duarte. Man, how are you doing, brother? I'm doing great, Ken. It's great to see you, and it's great to be out there again. Oh, man. Likewise, it's good to see you. How have you been? How have you been? What's going on? Been doing you? good. You know, I mean, the biggest thing is I got back in the studio back in September last year and recorded another album. I got a Brandon Temple on drums. He was, of course, on the first record, Texas yes. Sugar. And then I got Jessica Will on bass, which is a bass player that I've been playing around town with. And she's just so rock solid. And I wanted somebody that was that, you know, the cat that I normally use, great player, great soldier. But I wanted somebody really simple and that wouldn't kind of overthink the situation because the label kind of wanted a blues record. And that's what kind of put me off my uh, off my balance a little for a while, more equilibrium. They wanted a blues record. And I was like, no, man, I want to, you know, flex my musical muscle again, show what people have <laughs> me. But, you know, I, after I thought about it, it's like, yeah, just get out. You know, that's 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 really my wheelhouse, you know, playing the blues and stuff. So I pretty much did another blues record. There's a couple crazy Chris songs on there, but it's unmistakably Chris Duarte and Jessica Wills. Are great. She was a great fit for it. And that's all it is. And it was so simple. I mean, the studio we went into out in uh, northern northern part of L.A., uh, it had great equipment, a lot of vintage stuff, and I did the whole album on just one guitar, a couple pedals, and one amp, and that's all oh, I man. did the whole album. Out. Wow! Well, how long <laughs> did it take for you to uh, to finish that thing? We did we did it in two weeks. We tracked everything in two weeks. And the nice. funny thing was, we uh, I had you know I was just messing around because I thought that the normal mod or the normal mo that I've been associated with Mike Varney doing all the records Mike Varney is, you know, right. you go in, you get the rhythm tracks. So the normal ways you get the rhythm tracks. And then if you can get a couple solos, great, you know, but normally you'll come back and redo the solos, maybe redo some rhythm parts or add some rhythm parts and you'll get the vocals coming back. 
So when the vocals were said, well, anyway, I'm sorry, getting ahead of myself. Uh, when the solos came up while we're recording the tracks, I'm just, okay, solo, whiz around, this sounds, the guitar sounds great. Okay, so we do all that, we leave, and he goes, okay, come back to do the vocals. So I grab my guitar, I get in the studio, and it's just, it's a different studio now, and all it is is just a console room and a little vocal booth. Oh, and I'm wow. like, I'm like, <laughs> we're gonna do guitar tracks, aren't we? And he goes, what guitar? No, no, it's done. Everything's done. Nice. He's like, what? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Play me some of that guitar. I want to hear it. And sure enough, it sounded great. And oh, I was man. thinking, you know, I know how Dennis operates. Dennis Herring is producing it. He did Texas Sugar and Rob, and he records everything. He, I'm, it's it, the, the moments before the song, the moments during we're talking stuff. He records everything because you never know when there might be some sort of diamond in the rough there, you know, hidden away. Uh, so uh, I, he recorded everything and everything just sounded great and it worked out. But I was wondering if he had told me, hey, when the souls come up, you know, Chris, apply yourself. Let's get it. Let's try to get this all done. And if I would have like tightened up and done something different because the solos sound good. A lot of it's not like this. Whoa, Chris Doherty's playing some new stuff and it's really blowing my hair back. No, it's like straight blues and it sounds, the phrasing's good, uh, the tone's great. And that's what I was most proud of. You know, it's nice. not me trying to show off and, you know, look at me, listen to me. It's it just, it's it's really a group thing and it sounds great. I can't wait to hear it just off of that. Man, and, and the fact that you went back in and and worked with uh, with Dennis was it is that right? Yeah, Dennis uh, Herring. Dennis Herring. Well, I mean the fact that he did Texas Sugar and he did Romp, which are probably two of my favorites that you've done, that in and of itself just makes me real curious to check it out because I I dig the work that you do and I obviously love those two records. So that makes me excited, man. I'm excited to to check that out. People look at you as such an incredible guitar player. I I just I think the world of you, you and I go way back. Man, just a, a hero as far as I'm concerned. You know, a friend and a hero of mine and I I love that. But hearing you say, "Yeah, man, listening to back to the guitars and, and whatnot and uh yeah it all sounded really good you're a guy that like i mean you blow minds with your playing so what is it that you look for when you're playing listening back to your own solos that you're like yeah that's it that's the one what i listen for is the tone i listen to the phrasing and really the rhythmic how it rhythmically goes along because i'm 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 like a big sort of rhythm player too. I love playing rhythm. I mean, if you can stick me in the background playing rhythm all night, that would be just fine with me. No solos fine with me. I mean, my, my, my ultimate gig would be playing rhythm in ACDC. I would love oh, that gig. I would wow. kill for that gig. Oh, in fact, man. I actually did when they were up for looking for rhythm guitar players, I sent in a little thing to their, their booking agent and told them, I'm available. I would love to do this, do this thing. Of course, they kept the family. But anyway. Oh, uh, man, I would have loved that. I would have I, loved that. Oh, I my listen, God. I listen for the tone and for the, the rhythmic qualities of it. And, you know, and that's what I'm mainly listening to, how it how it lines up with the drums and all the hits and stuff. And just and then how it feels, you know, it feels good to me because we all know as guitar players when it's feeling right, you know. I know there are those chances where, you know, you think you played a terrible show, then you listen back to a tape later and you go, well, that's not so bad. That's pretty right. good. You know? Right. So, but, you know, that's what I'm listening for is how it lines up with everything. You know, it's not in an unusual place, you know, if it works. And that's well, basically it. If 
Fantastic, man. Well, how did you come to the guitar? Let's go way back, man. Let's let's start let's start at the beginning. How did you discover music? How did you discover the guitar? And what kind of led you, propelled you to where you are today? What led me to the guitar was probably the, the very beginning was when Fiddler on the Roof made its network debut on TV. Uh, there's a scene in it where the Fiddler's on the roof and he's silhouetted against the starry night and he's sawing out, you know, and I thought that was so cool looking. I thought that was so hip. And so immediately when school started, this is third grade, I think, second or third grade, I was in D.C., and I went down and I, I tried to sign up for band or orchestra and I wanted to play the violin. And they told me at the desk, they said, we have too many violin players. How about the clarinet? I said, okay, clarinet. So I went home and I told my mom, I said, too many violin players. How about the clarinet? And my mom was just thinking of me in a room squawking out these lines on a clarinet, how she wouldn't go for it. My mom goes, no, you're not playing the clarinet. So that was it. It wasn't like an alternative. Hey, we'll get you this. We'll get you that. No, it was just no clarinet. It's like, okay. So I went on being a young boy, you know, running around the the neighborhood with the kids and stuff, but the seed was kind of planted. Right. So then later, when I'm about 13, 12 or 13, my older brother gets a guitar. And he's got a Takamini classical guitar, nylon string. And so I'm constantly picking that thing up, playing it. My mom decides, well, you know, you're playing it all the time. I think it's time you get a guitar. So then we went down to uh, Caldwell Music in San Antonio. It was right down. I don't think they're even around anymore. But they were downtown, one of the big music stores at the time. And we got a Takamini F-140, like a dreadnought. And for me, I was trying to learn solos and stuff. So what I would do is I would just put electric strings on it. I wouldn't put acoustic strings. The electric strings were a lot looser and I could bend the strings. So I played it with electric strings for probably the first two or three years I had that thing. And one thing I noticed when I would hang out with the kids in the smoking area, I wasn't a smoker, but that's where all my friends were. All the freaks were there. And so I'd hang out there. And when we'd be playing, you know, we got Beatles books at home and stuff because it's really easy to learn uh, songs and learn your chords, too, because the chords are like right over the words as you're reading along in the song. So it was real easy to read. I found it very easy to read that music. Uh, I found that I was just a really quick learner. I'd say, what's the problem? You know the song. These are the chords. It's real easy. Here's how it goes. And people wouldn't get it. And I finally started to realize, well, maybe I got something here. Maybe I got something a lot of people don't have. I have this natural ability. So I just started to really work at it. And then from then on, I uh, I dropped out of high school. And then I moved to Austin. And I moved to Austin specifically because my friend Clark Ellison was a bass player. And he knew how to read music, the proper, the, the standard notation. Sure. And I moved in with him up in Austin in a small efficiency apartment. And we we just started learning songs. And at this time, I was, a, I was a big prog rock guy. So I was learning like a bunch of Yes songs. And I was trying to be like, you know, Mahavishnu and Al Demiola. When I heard Land of the Midnight Sun for the very first time, I was like, that's what I want to be like. When he started ripping those notes, I was like, yes, that's what I want to be. I want to play like that. So that's that's what I did. And then I got my first band, which is pretty much a jazz band, which I couldn't play jazz to save my life. 
but I could read the chord charts because I had already gotten a real book, my first real book. Oh, wow. Back, back in the days when you had to ask, you know, oh, I'll take a real book, you know, under your breath because they were illegal and you had to find the right music stores. Everybody right. knew which music store to go to to get one. But, of course, I had my real book. So from then on, I started reading chord charts, learning how to read chord charts, and learning all those chords, you know, the jazz chords or the chords with the extensions in them. Yes. And uh, then it was just after that, then I got in a blues band after that. And when I found out that I didn't sound like the guys in the record, I, I, I had this really snobbish attitude towards blues. Oh, it's easy. How much easier can you get? One, four, five. There's nothing like this, you know, nothing like giant steps or moments notice or something. These, that's a chord, you know, that's a chord structure. But, uh, when I started playing blues, I was like, I sound nothing like those guys in the record. These guys sound cool. I don't sound cool. So I started really working on the blues and Bobby Mack and night train got in that group and we were touring around Texas and that's what kind of started it. Oh my gosh, man! So I mean, yeah, I knew that you had a penchant for jazz, and I knew that you had a penchant for for cats like you know, well, the Mahavishnu Orchestra, the horn players. Yeah, I was really attached to horn players. Yeah, and you can tell too the way that you play. A lot of times, your rhythmic style, you're almost sounding like like a horn section. If if you know, just the way that you um, accent certain notes and, and things right. like that. So yeah, I totally catch that with your playing for sure. But how did you, how did you discover the blues and what made you kind of go down that, that road, especially coming from, you know, well, like Mahavishnu Orchestra. Yeah. And all LDL, the prog rock. Yeah, right. All right. The cool prog stuff. Yeah. Cause General Giant, you know, and Nectar and all those groups. I just love them to death and all those, you know, Brand X. I was crazy. Brand about X, those guys. Yeah. Oh, yes. So, uh, what it was was, yeah. Cause when I started playing the blues, like I said, I, it was like, you know, they give me a blues solo and I'd be playing all this crazy stuff and these blues progressions. Like, no, that's, that's not too great. Chris, what? <laughs> listen to this. Bobby said, okay, here's some Freddie keys, Freddie King solos. I want you to learn these solos note for note, just like they are. And I, when the, when your solo comes up, that's what I want you to play. And that's what he did. He made me learn all these Freddie King solos, learn these Hubert Sumlin solos and, it really made me appreciate the phrasing and the way they attack the notes, the tone they had on their guitars. And then I'd start to go out and see players. I used to go see Derek O'Brien. I used to just sit at his feet at the Austex Lounge. And I used to just, I was amazed because it's like, that guy has not played one mistake this whole night. And here I play mistakes all the time. And he's playing so consistent. I want to be like that. So I really started to work at the blues and I wanted to be, I wanted to be good at it. You know, I didn't want to be a hack. I didn't, I wanted to sound just like the records or close to it, but then not be a, at the time, no, it, at the time being a clone would have been just fine. You know, if I could sound just like BB or just like Freddie fine with me or Albert King, but then uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting scattered here. I'm just thinking no, all the memory. This These memories great. are just flooding in. I anyway, love it. So I wanted I wanted to be good and I wanted to sound just like the records because I felt that's that's the high watermark. I need to sound like these guys because these are the guys, the police that I go out and hear people play, they're sounding like this. So I want to sound like this too. I you know, that's just it. I just wanted to be good. I wanted to be, I wanted to sound good. I wanted a good tone, but I wasn't really confusing myself with 
trying to chase the tone through the amps because I knew the tone was coming from my hands. Right. It's how I attack the notes. It's how I, you know, uh, uh, play the play the strings with my right hand, and that's that's what it, I concentrated on is all that stuff, learning how to play like what I hear on the records. And then when I started hearing, listening to, to Stevie's stuff, because all us guitar players, we had bootleg tapes of Stevie. All of us did. We had several shows. That Steamboat show, that in the beginning, they made it into an album. Yes. Everybody had that. And we all knew that as the Steamboat tape, because it was recorded at Steamboat, the club. And I'd listen to it, and I'd be going, how is he getting those tonal changes? And how is he... Oh, he's changing the pickup selector. That's what he's doing. So I started working on that, started changing, you know, different pickups for different sections of the songs. And I really delved in deep to that. And that's mainly why I play a strat these days is because you have five tones you can you can sort of work at. That's your base foundation. And then when it when you start putting in your hands and how you tack the notes and how you pick them, there's more tones to that. So that's 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 when I started really uh, hunkering down and working hard and uh, you know I, my wife at the time she had a good state job and I quit working at the age of 24 and I stayed home and practiced and practiced and practiced because I was already playing a bunch of gigs I was already playing you know anywhere between 15 and 20 gigs a month and I told my wife I said I know I have something here I know I could do something. If you let me stay home and practice, I promise I'll practice real hard and I'll be making just as much money as you. Because at the time, it wasn't world domination. It was just making rent. We had a child now. Celeste was born. And I said, I, I can make just as much as money as you if you let me stay home and practice. And I could probably get in better groups and we'll get more money. And that's that was the goal, you know, just to, to make rent and make more money. Unbelievable. Your approach to the guitar... You kind of you kind of talked about picking up a Strat, and you had those five pickup selections, right? You don't use a wah pedal. No. And there was a trick that you had taught me a while back. This was, uh, oh, man, this must be almost 20 years ago. Yeah, easily. And I still use it when I don't have a wah pedal, and it is the <laughs> coolest thing ever. And people wonder how you do it. And I just, I can't, it's hard to explain without actually showing, but, man, I like the fact that you say that you have five bass tones yeah, and then you can go from there because you do go from there and there's a whole lot more of a tonal palette than you think is actually there for you in a Stratocaster. I love that. So yeah, thank you for adding to my, to my arsenal there. <laughs> and then I learned that from a drummer. My roommate was oh my a drummer. Gosh. He sort of played guitar and he was doing that in his room. He was going, wow, 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 wow. And I was like, how are you doing that? Yeah. So you take the tone, the first tone knob, and you turn it all the way bass. Yep. And then you work on every downstroke with your right hand. You hit that, you hit the toggle switch, you know, put it back to the put it back to the treble pickup and then back up to the front pickup. And that's how, you know, basically it's a wah pedal, you know, yes. from bass to treble, wah. And so I worked with that and I worked at getting different ways to get around that because I've listened to McLaughlin. He does these rhythm things, you know, which I know he learned from his time with Indian music. But I mean, that's, that's what I kind of worked on. And the thing I love cool is when you start doing that, what I start doing on stage is I start walking around because people think I'm like, moored to a wah pedal but i show them nope it's nope. not a wah i'm just nope. walking around <laughs> yeah 
I used to be actually much better at it. It's kind of fallen. It's kind of fallen by the wayside a little, but I still do it once in a while. And that way it keeps it special. Cause if you do it all right. the time during a gig, it's like always oh, doing that thing again. You know, if you do it like once or <laughs> twice a night, it's like, Whoa, that was so cool. Right. Right. Well now after this whole thing, you're going to go right back to it and go, Oh yeah. Let, yeah. Let, let working on, work on a little bit. Trying, exactly. Yeah, Lord knows I'm going to be doing the exact same thing once we get off. <laughs> and that's what I tell people. I mean, what I would do when I go see Derek O'Brien play a whole night, I would be freaked out because Stevie was playing. Yeah, he was playing every Tuesday at Rome and every Thursday at the Continental Club. And I did see him at the Continental Club, you know, before he had any record out or anything. But, you know, I got to see Derek O'Brien. That's who I learned. And David Murray, another great guitar player. And Denny Freeman, of course. I got to see all Denny's. those guys. Yeah, Denny Denny was tremendous, man. He, just the vocabulary he had and the tones he had, amazing. But I used to watch those guys, and immediately I would go home and start practicing because I would just be watching their hands and both of them, you know, their right and their left hand, and how are they getting this and how are they doing that. I mean, yeah. I mean, I know a lot of guys, no, I'm going to go home and throw on my good. No, don't do that. You know, go home and practice. <laughs> right. That's what I did. Uh, that's awesome. Where are you from originally? Originally, I'm from San Antonio, Texas, born in the Knicks Hospital right downtown in San Antonio. It's still there, as a matter of fact, still operational. Nice. Uh, but yeah, it was the Knicks Hospital in San Antonio, 1963. Wow, man. And you moved to Austin for the music? For the music specifically, because all my friends in Smoking Air, they were they were talking about a club called Raul's, which was a, really a punk club. A lot of the punk guys, I remember people were talking about when Iggy Pop came to Austin, he played, you know, at Raul's and all the cats, you know, the, 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 just all the punk guys that were coming up, you know, Dead Kennedys were playing there. Uh, I want to say I'm, Cheetah Chrome was this guitar player. I can't remember the name of the. Well, he was a guitar player, punk guitar player. But I, I loved, I kind of loved that music at the beginning because it was just this unbridled, you know, awesome, you know, aggressiveness on the guitar, you know, and I just loved that whole spirit. I, I was still a prog rock guy, but I appreciated the energy that punk rock brought to the scene. It just kind of changed things up, you know, and that's what I loved about it, the change it brought, because everybody, you know, disco was going, there was the anti, just disco sucks and all that movement. Right. But I, I love the way punk came in and kind of shook things up. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I moved to Austin because that's where all my friends were talking about it being a music town. And so that's why I moved there. Well, with Austin being a music town, what is it? What is it that, that, that draws people there? I mean, you have, for a lot of the blues guys, for a lot of the guitar players, it's, it's the allure of Stevie and Jimmy and, you know, Doyle and Charlie and all those, all those guys, you know, and then they start learning about Denny and they start learning about cats like that. What was it for you? regarding Austin, you know, being a music town, what makes it such a, a, a almost like a Mecca of, of a music town, if you will? I think what it is, it's the large population of musicians that we have here. And I think what it was for me was the opportunity. I knew if I get in a band that I would start playing out in front of people. In San Antonio, I knew of very few clubs that I can get into. I mean, I wasn't even on that level yet of getting into a band and thinking about, playing on stage getting paid for it that was like so far off the, the the highest goal that i could achieve is probably playing in a garage with some friends normally we never had a bass player nobody was playing bass uh you always had like three guitar players and a drummer and that's basically how it was 
And Austin, I felt, just offered more opportunity for me to really achieve my goals, you know, to learn more and to get into bands that would be playing in front of people. And that's what I think what it did for me. And sure enough, it happened. You know, that's I went right for it. You know, I started practicing, got in some groups, you know, started networking. And before you knew it, there I was playing. My first gig was playing in an Italian restaurant, uh, playing background music for my pay was a plate of spaghetti. That's what I got. I got a meal Amen. for playing. That was All my right. first gig. And then my other first gig was I think I made. $32 at a jazz gig. I think that's how much it was, which was actually a lot of money back then. Well, right. I, I mean, my uh, my stories of Austin are, are usually, you know, playing a club and at the end of the night you get paid your, you know, whatever, your 30 bucks or whatever. Yeah. You go down to, to Magnolia's or whatever, you know, yep. Congress and uh, you go have, you know, have your breakfast and you see everybody that was playing that night there too. Right. Yeah, that's my memory of Austin for sure, man. But I, you know, there really is a magic there. There really is an allure there. And uh, I, I definitely, definitely love it. And there there seems to be a sound. There seems to be a true Austin sound and not a whole lot of cities can kind of boast that you know you might have your New Orleans you might have Austin you might have Minneapolis right. Chicago Chicago Memphis. yes yeah. LA's have, even got its own thing you know yeah yeah what is in your opinion the Austin sound it's the big guitar the big Texas tone on the guitar you you know you back off back off the mid and you push the treble and the bass on your amp and you know everybody's playing old fenders especially the the amp that a lot of the blues guys loved in the 80s part the nights was the the 60s super reverbs right everybody that was the amp of choice to get i never owned one i had i had my uh let's see i had a blonde bandmaster when i first moved to austin but i never got a cabinet for it uh and then the first real amp i had was a fender 75 and that's what i learned to play with i just i'm not one of these cats that searches for this one tone i mean i get something and i I work with it and see what i can get out of it right and fender 75 was the amp that landed in my lap and then i learned how to use and what i got that from david murray it was it was his amp he gave it to me or he sold it to me and that's where i started off from you know it's funny you mentioned the magnolia cafe magnolia cafe that used to be the austex lounge long Ah. time ago that's where i go see you know Derek O'Brien, I'd go see Lucinda Williams. She'd be playing there. Sure. She'd be playing there to nobody. I mean, I remember when I was doing my job, I was the office supply delivery driver from when I was 20 to 24. And there was Towns Van Zant playing in a little club off the drag, which is Guadalupe Street between right. 19th and 29th Street. Uh, there's Towns Van Zant starting up at, you know, 12 o'clock in the afternoon, just sitting in this back room playing songs. You know, this has got to be like 1981, oh, man. 82, maybe. Yeah, back then. Uh, but yeah, all that's that's what I mean. You know, Austin just had the opportunities back in the day, you know, in the early 80s to mid 80s. There was close to 200 clubs that featured music, you know, seven nights a week. And that that runs the gamut of you know, even hotel lounges where I saw great jazz players at hotel line the hyatt regency i used to always go see uh bill ginn who was the keyboard player for passenger i'd see him backing up Susie stern great jazz vocalist uh horacio rodriguez on bass 
these guys aren't with us anymore, but I used to go watch them down at the, the lounge, you know, the atrium lounge in the, in, in, in the Hyatt Regency down on the river. You know, there was another club called Piggies that was down. It's now Manuel's. It's a Mexican food restaurant. Before that, it was Duke's Royal Coach Inn, which was a punk club. And it's it's on the west side of Congress between 3rd and 4th Street. Uh, Manuel's still there, but it used to be Piggies, and they were a jazz club. I played there many times. On the corner at 4th and Congress is a place called the Texas Inn. That yeah, was like more okay. of a dive. Right, that right. was another club that a lot of sort of blues and and punk guys played at. Then the the old near the Greyhound station, which used to be on fourth off Congress between Brazos and Congress on the east side, that was Club Foot. And a lot that was like a medium size venue. That was like, you know, the two fifty to five hundred seater. Right. And I saw a lot of people. I saw Dr. John play there. I'd seen some reggae bands play there. I saw some other bands. I can't even remember the other bands played there, but I remember Dr. John specifically. I remember saw his show. And I mean, all the clubs that were just downtown, and that's just to name a few. And there were some other ones. The Elephant Room's still going. That's down on Congress between between 3rd and 4th on the west side. And that one's been around for a long time. Right, right. But yeah, I mean, but getting back to the reason I moved to Austin, the opportunity was there. Many opportunities. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Well, you also are notorious. I, I have said this many many times and i'm sure that i will continue to say it you are the biggest road dog i've ever met in my life <laughs> ever ever you man i don't know how you do it i don't know how you and you're the one that drives you're the one that drives you're yeah. you're, you're the guy I, I mean how many dates a year like do you normally do because i mean you you're out man you go. Well, dur during our peak years, I remember we added it up like during, uh, I believe it was probably 1992 when we were just getting started and really playing on because 91 is when we started taking the CDG on the road. And our only corridor was we had a club called Fatso's in Arlington, Texas. And then we'd play uh, Liberty D's, which is in Norman, Oklahoma. And then we'd play the bottleneck in Lawrence, Kansas. Yeah. And then we'd play the zoo bar in Lincoln, Nebraska. And that was our corridor. We'd go up there and then three months later, we'd do the whole thing and we'd do that run. And we did that probably four or five times before we started branching out. You know, clubs in Colorado started hearing about us. Uh, clubs on the east side of all those gigs, Missouri, Kansas City, they started, you know, started playing the Grand Emporium. Actually, I played the Grand Emporium in yeah. the mid-80s with Junior Medlow and the Bad Boys, as well as the Zoo Bar. I played the Zoo Bar first time, probably 1987, with wow. Junior Medlow and the Bad Boys. Uh, but, you know, they slowly, word of mouth sort of spread. Back in the old days, that's how you got records, you know, word of mouth spread, buzz. We didn't have social media. We didn't have all, you know, you'd send out your press packs to clubs and stuff right. with a cassette tape, you know. <laughs> that's how you get in a, in, a, in a band photo and a little bio, you know, in a folder, in a little folder, portfolio folder. But anyway, but that's how we did. It sort of spread word of mouth. And before you knew it, you know, we had made it up Chicago. We had played Buddy Guys Legends a couple times. And the place, it, it already had a scene there. I mean, it was already had a crowd. Every Friday and Saturday, it was going to be guaranteed packed. But it was starting to really get packed for my shows. I mean, there'd be this huge line out the door, lining up at 7 p.m. And I didn't start till 9 or 10. And 
the the guy there, the manager, the A and R guy from Silvertone called him up, and said, "Oh, well, who you got playing there?" Because Buddy Guy was on Silvertone, right? And the the manager for uh, Legend goes, "Oh man, you just hear this guy, Chris Torte is playing this really raucous sort of Texas guitar player. It's real aggressive. I just love it. Crowds go crazy for him." And then I was like, mm, "I'll go check it out." So he flew down there, Michael Tedesco, which he doesn't work for Silvertone anymore. I found out, but uh, he flew down there, loved it. Met me that night. A couple months later, lawyers were meeting and contract was signed. And and it was all done without sending out a ton of press packs, uh, without uh, a booking. Well, actually, I did have a booking agent at that time. But yeah, without a manager, without all that stuff that you kind of need nowadays. Right. It, it was just done the old way. But uh, yeah, that's that's that sort of started. And plus, I love being on the road. I love. I don't mind driving. It's my van. It doesn't bother me a bit. Plenty of guys in drive. That's what I tell them. You know, we're here to drive. I said, man, there's enough miles for everybody on this tour. Do not worry. <laughs> You'll get to drive. Right. But I mean, I just love it pulling up and every day is going to be different. And that's what I love about it. You know, you, you sure you might be in a hotel. The, the main things are sort of the same. It's a hotel. It's a club. It's going to be miles driving. But you don't know what's going to happen in between that. You don't know how the gig's going to be. And I just love it. You know. Plus, nowadays, I make much more money out on the road than I do hanging around Austin. And so it, it doesn't bother me to be out on the road. Plus, you know, I got all my partying out of me. I've been sober for a while. I got the partying out of me. Right. And now I just leave all that energy for the music. Save it for the stage, you know. Because I would see it on, on the road. I could tell which bands wouldn't be around for very long because right. they'd be partying super hard and they'd be hung over the next day. And I'm like, mm, give these guys about a year or two and they'll yeah. be gone. Yeah. And sure enough, most of them always fell by the wayside. Cause oh, it, it takes, it takes a certain discipline you have to have on the road. You really got to want that life because it gets, it gets pretty tough, man. Yeah. Well, how do you stay sane? on the road if you will like i mean is there is there like a routine that you have that kind of keeps you mentally and physically um you know i guess conditioned or you know uh just performing at your best or you know is, is it just kind of like been there done that i know how this goes and you know just repeat i mean there'll always be the been there done that but it's what i do back in the day when we first started going on the road we would just get to the club, whatever, you know, we had no, we, we didn't have the, the routine of advancing shows that didn't come until later where you call up the club. Okay. When, when's load in when blah, 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 you know, that's that we felt that was for bigger groups and we didn't even know about that routine yet, right. but we just get to the club whenever and we would stay there the whole time. And then after the gig, we would go out looking for a hotel and then we'd all squeeze into one room, you know, no matter there was just three of us. So it was easy to squeeze into one room. And that's how the gig went. I mean, we'd be hanging out the club, practicing backstage you know for several hours you know after sound you know sound check be done it'd be four or five o'clock we didn't play till 10 we just hang around the club you know we weren't drinking i never was a drinker so i wouldn't drink i'd sit there and i'd practice the whole time sitting backstage and working up new songs trying to write songs uh the routine i do now is i just get myself steadily to the gig. None of this speeding. I got all those jayas out of me a long time ago. <laughs> we don't do that crazy driving. We just drive, you know, drive the speed limit, get to the gig, you know, 
uh, advance the show, find out if you get there a little early, go check into the motel, uh, go down, do load in. If you have enough time, maybe go back to the hotel, get a little bit more hours of practicing in, just chill, and then get down to the club, play, and then get out of there. Very few times do I hang out at a club after the gig. Very few. I'm mainly just packing my stuff up, get my money, and I'm gone. Wow. You know, and, and it's not that I'm... Uh, I do like hanging around and stuff like that, but you know that's just the routine I'm in, and that's what saves me the energy to get up and do it again the next day. It's a job, man. It's yeah, it job. is. It's I mean, our first our first wives used to think it was like once we left the door, okay, goodbye, we'll see you in six weeks. Because back there, the tours were always six to eight weeks, right? And and they thought it was just a nonstop party right. from then on until we got back. It's like no, this is tough work i mean when you're when you're driving through inclement weather not just raining when you have to do snow and there's ice on the road and you're driving 15 miles an hour for hours and hours and if you have to do mountain passes you're you're crawling you know you can go up the mountains you know 15 30 miles an hour but when you're coming down you're going like five miles an hour yes i mean i've done all that you yes, know you have, oh yeah uh, i remember one time we were going to tell you right and the mountains were just horrible iced over and we it took us we had to be at the club by 10 o'clock well no way we were going to make by 10 we made it to ridgeway by 12 o'clock and it was just 20 miles to go and we were like we can at least play one hour when we get there Nope, it took us two hours to go 20-something miles, oh just driving slow. I but, you know, that's you. It, it's that, you know, it's it's probably, you know, terrible PAs. You have to deal with the sound, <laughs> and you know, and, and not going in there and being a diva, you know, kill them with kindness. That's always my thing, because I want to create a productive musical environment. That's what I need to play my best is a good, positive atmosphere here, because I can't. I can't do it if the club owner's really grouchy or the sound guy's a grouch or it's just everything just high stress. I I really can't play in those conditions. You know, I you also said something too though about just killing them with kindness, right? And that's something that we've said on this show countless times. Just how how easy is it for you just to be nice, right? Just to be nice. It's I mean Right. And I mean, that's going to go so much further than than you being an asshole and like just, you know, just, yeah, let's see how long you work. Exactly. Your longevity, uh, your consistency is, uh, you know, is proof of your demeanor, you know. So, uh, yeah, good on you, man. I mean, yeah, because people always the thing is. People will always remember if you're an asshole, and they'll yes. remember because you'll never be back there. Everything they'll talk about is how much of an asshole you were. Right. But if you're just if you're if you're kind and you always come in, you're responsible. You always start on time. You're easygoing. You work with anything. Believe me, even if you're not doing good for business there, they'll still give you a gig because they like you. Yes. You know, and yes. that's yeah, that's why how I've maintained these relationships with clubs for for 20 years, you know, 25 years. Right. Well, that's also kind of the name of the game. I mean, when we look at it as a business, right, Mm -hmm. this is what helps us keep the lights on. So, I mean, it's, yeah, 
this is when it does become a job and this is when it does become a grind and you know it's it's those moments where we're faced with the tribulations and and whatnot to, you know that's where you rise up that's where you shine and that's yeah. kind of where you know i think that's one of those places where really they'll, they'll make or break a band they'll yeah. make or break an artist they'll you know they'll kind of show you who's cut out for the road and who's not right so it's so it's so great hearing this from you because you're just you're echoing things that I believe. You're also um, man, you're making me miss the road. <laughs> I can't wait to get back out. You know, uh, so yeah, it, I'm sure that there's a a bunch of musicians listening right now just going, yeah, no, I totally get it. Yeah, I'm- and if if you're not following what this guy is saying, <laughs> you're that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just, don't do that. Right. You're not supposed to do that. Yeah, because I mean, and there are gigs where it's it's real high stress in there, and I have to I have to put on this veneer of I'm gonna work and be so kind to them and just yeah. work through this, you know, because I need to do my show, you know, that's for my own well being. Uh, and then I see these, I see a lot of young cats nowadays because I've I've had this gig down on Sixth Street every Wednesday and Thursday that I can pretty much play anything. So I use it as kind of like a, a workout gig. I can work on a lot of things and, and, you know, I could play whatever I want and they love it. Uh, but I see a lot of the younger cats. I'm getting to know a lot of the younger players that are coming up in Austin because it's down there in sixth street. And I see them and they're kind of being lazy sitting on their amps playing the slow blues. It's their, their mindset is there's nobody here. I don't care. I was like, dude, do, do you know how happy I was? to be on a stage. I didn't care if there was nobody here. I'm on stage playing me. I'm getting paid to do what I love to do. You know, even if it's three or four bucks, I don't care. I'm getting, I'm being paid to play. I'm being, you know, I get the club has allowed me to come in and play my music. Are you crazy? I mean, I couldn't, when I was, when I was in my young twenties, I couldn't wait to get out there on stage. And then, I mean, even though I've gotten older and it does get a little tough sometimes, but I still, when I step on that stage ready for gig, it's like, yep, this is why I'm here. You know, it's because I get to play, you know, and I've been able to play my own music, do my own thing for 27, 28, 30 years almost. You know, and make a living at it and put a girl through college. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Man, I remember being in high school. I remember being in high school. I remember rolling downtown Santa Fe, the mean streets of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Oh, yeah. Hanging (laughs) with my my, my buddy, uh, Nick Calavota, Nick Cali, Mr. Cali. Yeah. Who's an incredible reggae artist, by the way. Right. Uh, But I remember being in high school, driving down, you know, the downtown Santa Fe. And my way down comes on the radio, and it's on the radio. It's not the. Yeah. It's, I, I, like, what is this? This was so new, and it was refreshing, and it, it had those those moments of familiarity. You know, you mm-hmm. had those kind of right. Austin-y, Stevie kind of things going on, but it was funky, and it was cool, and it was mm-hmm. different, and there's a, a different kind of passion, a different kind of aggression. Having you, be out since '95, right? like really hitting hard and getting on mm-hmm. the way. What has the climate of the music business, how has it changed for you since 1995? Has it gotten better for you? Has it gotten worse for you? How do you think that it's it's uh, helping or hurting uh, new artists? 
I, I think, okay, several things have changed because with social media, that being probably the biggest thing, yes. uh, you can get out there and connect with people over the computer. You can send all your music and your photos and stuff right to the club electronically. Uh, that's a big thing. You can get out and advertise, you know, to possibly thousands, if not millions of people at once with the social media that helps you. Uh, yeah. Networking is easier. You know, you don't have the, the mail system to do it. You don't have, you know, phones, cell phones back in the day. We, you know, when you got in that van, you drove, nobody was contacting you till you got to a phone, you know, back in the day, uh, uh, GPS, you know, we used to have the big laminated Atlas. That yes. was our GPS back in the day. <laughs> we used to joke about if only we had on the dashboard, this electronic thing that we can access information. We used to talk about this back in the, the early nineties. We were on the road, this, this electronic thing that we can access all this information and get a hold of people. Turns out now it's just in our pockets. You know, we walk right. around in our pockets, but it's, Money has gotten a little, I mean, if you're doing well, you know, things are going to be well for you. You're going to have, you know, you're going to probably be in a tour bus. You're probably going to be making a little bit more money. You'll be staying in nicer places. Uh, With me, I think with all the social media and stuff, it's been able, even though I've waned a little, waned a lot actually, but I've been able to still make a living from from just having Texas Sugar do so well. Because, I mean, realistically, none of my albums have done as well as Texas Sugar. And so I've been still able to live off Texas Sugar, you know, for all these years. I mean, I've had little pockets, you know, little little bumps here and there. But I'm hoping to get back this new record. I'm hoping it'll do a little something. Because now with my knowledge and how to live uh, economically, if I just do, if it just does a minor hit, even a hit, anything like that, I, I, I'll be able to bank my money a lot better and be able to sustain myself because social media has is, is allowed me to sort of get out there and still tour and still have be in touch with my base of fans all over the United States. Before that, it was just a mailing list. That's how you kept a hold of people. It's changed a lot for me, but I still enjoy what I do. I mean, I wish I could go more into depth about more facets of the industry, but I mean, uh, radio's changed. You know, it's really hard for a a rock and blues guitar player to get on the major uh, radio stations now. I mean, Gary Clark did really well. John Mayer did really well. Those are guys, you know, uh, sort of like the examples of doing really well, but there's there's some other guys floating around like in the midsection, you know, Walter Trout. Uh, oh, Joe Bonham can't can't mistake can't leave out Joe Bonamassa in the big time, right. but there's a lot of the guys in the mid level which I would consider myself at. We're we're able to do very well because the whole world has access to our music. You know, right. the people over in Japan or Europe are able to prop up my my sales and my visibility or re- relevance enough to keep me going here in the states. And I think that's been a real plus for a lot of musicians. Sure. Uh, just driving and getting out there and doing it, it's still pretty much the same for me. I mean, just get out there, just no more partying and stuff, but just getting out there and doing the road and doing what I love to do. And I still have to write songs, so I still want to put out records. There you go. Uh, and and for some reason, I'm able to fool record companies and giving me tens of thousands of dollars to do a record. Nice. And, but, 
on the same time, too, the technology has changed, too. You can also make your own records now. You know, you can all it takes is a laptop, and that's it. Few things that go along with recording, and you know, you got it set up. You can make a really good record on a laptop. Yes. But for me, though, there's a to me sonically, there's a big difference between a studio album that you spend tens of thousands of dollars on versus a laptop album. I know you can get real close, but believe me, I, I hear the difference between those two albums. And plus there's a whole vibe. You yeah. Know? There's that a too. total vibe. Absolutely. I think the vibe is, is a, is a very big thing. And sometimes people forget about that, but I think that the vibe is, is such a, a, an important piece and sometimes overlooked these days as far as recording is concerned. Yeah, so I, I feel you there, for sure. Yeah, because the vibe's going to come through in the music. You'll hear it in the music. Yes, yes. I mean, a good studio, a good engineer, good sound, that's inspiring to a player, that's inspiring right. to a singer, you know? And, and uh, when it's battle conditions and you're trying to get something done, eh, it might right. not, you know? It'll, <laughs> it'll be something, and it'll be something memorable for sure, but, uh, you know, I, I like I like the good vibes better than the, than the battle conditions. Definitely. Right? What excites you musically? What excites me musically is when I learn new stuff and, and when I learn new ways to get around different chords and new ways to solo or new sort of rhythmic things. That excites me when I get on something that I can add to my, my, my war chest, you know, my vocabulary. And that excites me. I mean, of course, new music excites me when, when I hear some good stuff coming out. I hear some new good players. Uh, there, there's a couple of good players around Austin. There's a couple of good players I see out in the states and stuff. But uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm focusing it back on me. Uh, it's just when I, when I break through another level in my playing, that excites me because those, those are so few and far between. You know. Yeah, that's amazing to hear. You know, and, and inspiring too, just to hear the amount of, of dedication and, and just all the practice that you get in there, right? To go ahead and, and, and what excites you is, is moving past where you're at, like growing musically. Um, yeah, I mean, you have to stay. I mean, that's what also has to keep me fresh because I could, it'd be easy for me to sit back and just stream videos all day long right. and not, not get out and practice because it starts, it starts getting in my head. You know, you got, you got to be working on stuff, Chris, because there's a reason being a guitar hero believe it or not you know because i don't want to be that cat that you you hear about him then you get down and see him play it's like i thought he could play you know what that <laughs> what was that you know i mean at, I, I take that seriously you know and i want to be not that i want people to be impressed by me i want them to see yeah you know he's got something he's got something kind of special and that's, right. that's, that's, that's what I've always known that I've had is something a little special. And that's what I look for in a lot of new artists, you know. I mean, yeah, they could be just gifted with technique and stuff, but is there something special? Are, are they able to, to hold my attention for a long time? Do you think they can get out and go on the road and, and, and drag people in from their houses, you know, people four and 500 miles away? Are they going to want to get up out of their house and come down and see you pay money to come right. see you? You know, right. somebody had told me this at, at some time and it just stuck. And what it was, was it's so easy to wow a crowd. You get a guitar, you go play. It's the easiest thing to do is wow a crowd. What you want to do and the hardest thing to accomplish is to make them remember. Yep. That's where it's at. 
right? And so making them remember. So, you know, hopefully it's it's being memorable for, for the right reasons and not the wrong reasons. Exactly. So, yeah. So there's there's that again too. We keep going to that to that place. Aside from music, what else do you like to do, man? What what got any hobbies, got any other interests? Let's see. Well, yeah, I mean, I like to do a little bit of cooking. I haven't been doing a lot of cooking because I've, I've kind of been by myself for a while. Since, and it's just no fun to cook for myself. I like cooking for somebody else. But when I do, I like to sort of do it up. Uh, I like to um, still like to practice a lot. I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get into some nice TV shows, or something like that, some TV series. You know, sure. I'll get into that. Uh I'll get into once in a while, I'll get into looking around at my equipment and saying, well, if something needs fixed or start recategorizing or recataloging <laughs> the stuff, you know, because I've actually got a bunch of stuff that I've, I'm a pack rat. I'm not one of these cats that gets something and throws it on eBay or tries to sell it. Right. I've got, I've got a lot of everything that I've still had over the years that people have given to me. I mean, I have, 30 something guitars and my, <laughs> my working collection is like, is like six of them. And right. there's like guitars that I haven't seen. So sometimes it'll be fun to go through the guitars and say, Oh, I haven't seen this one in a while. And I'll put some strings on it or something or play around with it and stuff. Uh, you know, you know, it's my musical life has kind of taken up my hobbies. I do like traveling, but being in a band that gets on the road, that sort of satiates that, you know, yes. I'm not traveling around. I love, traveling to exotic places for gigs you know i always loved going to japan it was great ended up marrying a japanese woman for a while you know learning their culture learning how to write and read it uh learning how to speak it uh i'm not great at it but i can get around i'll nice. drop me anywhere in japan i'll be fine nice uh and uh, you know and and seeing places seeing you know going to european countries I played a gig, a week-long gig in Beirut. That was really interesting. Wow. And and this was during, like, when times were kind of hot. You know, people's heads were getting chopped off. <laughs> and I still, I I didn't even think about it. I was like, hell yes, I'll go. Right. Gig in Ber a gig in Beirut, shoot you out. By myself, <laughs> fine with me. Send it. You know, that kind of takes up a lot of my habits and stuff. You know, I like hanging around with my girl, Beth Lee, and then I like playing in her group and learning songs with her because her group is like an Americana sort of blues thing. And then she's kind of venturing off into this like almost like college so kind of sound, but it's still got a little bit of rock to it. I mean, she's got so many influences. When I first saw her, she was more like a country and rockabilly and a little bit of blues. Right. And now she's changed a lot basically because she's been working with this producer, Vicente Rodriguez, for a while, who's the drummer for uh, Chuck Prophet. And so, sure, and yeah. So they've been, she's been doing that. She's been branching out, so I've been learning that music. And that, you know, and plus she's written seven of the 12 songs. She helped write, write seven of the 12 songs in the new album. Oh, wow. Because uh, I've always loved her songwriting. She's great with lyrics. So, you know, I learn a lot from her. And but that's yeah that's Beth Lee that's where I like hang I like hanging out with her and stuff, nice. but uh, yeah 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 you know I don't don't have a whole lot of hobbies anymore you know it's just like you know coming off the road I've I've kind of done it all there and I kind of just sort of decompress when I get home I and like then it. I have my gigs I have my gigs around town so that keeps me busy. Good, being that you are quite the road dog and you've done thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of gigs. Hmm. 
and millions and millions and millions of miles, right? What is the best show that you've ever played? What is the one that just stands out to you, your favorite show that you've ever done? You know, there's there's actually been a number of those shows. Those are the shows that I call the magical nights where all the ideas worked, everything everything you were thinking was coming out of your hands, and it was just all working. I mean, I remember some really memorable shows at the Fox Theater in Boulder, Colorado. Yes. I used to love that place. Uh, memorable shows at the Grand Emporium. Uh, let's see... Uh, I had a really nice show up and there was a festival. God, what was it? it was up in Canada and there's like 5,000 people up there. And I remember there's a video on YouTube with it. I played, you know, I played Shiloh or uh, the other song I put lyrics to, but it's basically Shiloh, minor blues. Uh, that was like one of those really good nights. Uh, and then I've had great magical nights to just tables and chairs, right? you right. know, when nobody's been there. And, you know, if the, those are nights I actually I have a lot of fun at because I can start trying anything. Right. And and when it works, it's just like this is so cool because all the ideas are working. And there's nothing but tables and chairs, but it, it doesn't bother me. I mean, that's why I am. When I hit the stage, it's play as hard as you can, try as hard as you can, because you know who knows if that's your last gig or not. And I play it like it is my last gig because this true. is this is how I learn. <laughs> This is, this is how I learn is when I'm trying out those ideas. I sound tremendous when I'm practicing scales in my bedroom. I'm, I'm a great player. But it's when I get out and play in front of people that it, it's, it's, it's like an extra weight has been put on me. And it's not so easy when you get in front of people. You kind of tighten up. So I'm trying to practice that muscle that goes from here to, to here. Well, I'm looking at it reverse. From, from here to here, you know on the guitar and right. to limber that muscle up to get good. Uh, those are the nights I try for, but yeah, I'd, I'd say probably the Fox theater were probably like my favorite shows. The nice. Fox theater in Boulder. Let's go the other side of that. What's the worst show that you Oh boy. I can remember the that uglies. pretty good. Yeah. I had, I had this one show at, uh, it's funny how you could just like the bad stuff. You always remember the bad stuff. Absolutely. I had this one show at uh, musicians exchange in Delray Beach in Florida, or Fort Lauderdale. It used to be the old one was in Fort Lauderdale. And I had I had just gotten pedal boards. You know, I'd just gotten them. And they were like, since I had like so many pedals, instead of having this huge, big rectangle in front of me, I had these two like offsetting ellipses that were set up like one here and one off on the side. Right. And so it would go with ergonomically how my leg goes moves out. So one pedal went bad on it, and I could not find which pedal it was. I couldn't take it out of the chain, oh. and I had I had a musician meltdown on stage during a song. I was tearing into that board, trying to get it out, trying to bypass it, and it was just it should have been filmed and sent off to psychiatric schools for study because <laughs> it was it was that bad of a meltdown. Oh, and man. I'll just always, and from that day on, that is why I do not have a pedal board. Cause so I can take things out. And I know, yes, there's probably some wizard pedal board maker out there. That's listening to this going, Oh, you just got the wrong guy to make it for you. I can build you some. <laughs> I know you can. I know you can trust me. This is the way I am. Just let me do it. Old school, run it in series. 
Because I could take one pedal out and throw it on the side and just keep rocking. Yeah, there you go. That's awesome. I love that. All right, man. Well, coming towards the end of this uh, this interview, I like to kind of ask these questions. They're quick-fire questions. So it's just like you don't even think. You you just go, man. Right. Just go. All right? And I'm real curious about this one with you just because it's you. Top three guitar players. Okay, McLaughlin's my man. Um, Hendrix after that. And, you know, it's really tough after that, you know, you know. McLaughlin and Hendrix, and then after that, it's just a bunch of them, you know, Beck, Stevie, Albert King, all the Kings, you know, I, it just spins off. I can I could really only name the top two guys, McLaughlin and Hendrix, for me, and that's not including all the jazz guys I love, man. Right, right. Well, let's go there. I, I'm I'm, I'm kind of curious, man. Top three blues guys, and then top three jazz guys. Ah, uh, top three blues guys. You got it, BB, man. BB just, God, BB can play so many different styles. You know, I'd have to say BB. You know, then there comes Albert King. It'll probably be my next one. And the third one, you know, I'd have to go with Stevie because Stevie just did things. He, He really changed it all up. I mean, and of course, I'm also forgetting Eddie Van Halen. He changed things up too, but, you know. Right. It's tacitly understood his his height on that list, you know. Oh, absolutely. Or his place on the list. And jazz guys, you said McLaughlin. jazz guys. I, you know, I love I love Joe Pass. Uh, I love you know, you know. There's a there's a time I I go through this phase. I listen to Michael Landau, but Michael Landau is really kind of a rock guy too. Right, right. Uh, George Benson. George Benson, another one of my top guys. He can play, I'm convinced he can play anything. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, uh, And then, uh, God, you know, Holdsworth. I love Holdsworth. Oh, man. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, right on, dude. Top three Desert Island Records. Desert Island Records. Um, I'd have to have Revolver, Beatles Revolver. I'd have to have uh, Axis Bold is Love. Uh, then the third one, it, it'd probably have to be Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Wow. Okay. If you could put together the most ridiculous band, just the, your dream band, whether these people be alive or dead, who would it be? Uh, like Miles Davis, uh, Keith Jarrett, uh, Tony Williams. Drums, uh, bass would have to be. Uh, I'll come back. He's a stand-up guy. One of my favorite stand-up guys. Play with Train on the uh, keyboard player. I'd have to go with Joe Zawinul. Well, no, I already said Keith Keith Jarrett. Well, right. throw Zawinul in there too. Right, another keyboard player. <laughs> uh, uh, I'd have to go. Uh, I already got guitar player, horn player. Let's go with Sonny Rollins on sax. And God, how come I can't think of that bass player? He's my favorite. Well, let's go with Charlie Hayden on bass. Okay. Want a singer in there? Who would it oh, be? Oh, singer. You know, I, I I'd have to either go for uh, I do like Sarah Vaughn a lot, uh, but you know the rock guys. I mean Robert Plant. Oh, God, he's such just an iconic voice. Uh, Johnny Hartman. I love it. That's a jazz cat. I'd, I'd have to probably go with, uh, I'd have to go with Robert Plant. 
Wow. Yeah. I'd love to hear Robert Blant go with a, a prog, you know, jazz. Yeah. Just to see what would happen. And I think that he would be so down with trying something like that too. That's right. Just, that's just me anyway. All right, man. If there was one band you can tour with right now, who would it be? Uh, probably be Weather Report, but they're all gone. <laughs> right. I would love to tour with Weather Report. The peak band, you know, when it was Erskine, Pistorius, Shorter, Zawinul, uh, you know, those, those guys. Or Miles's band that he had on the We Want Miles, you know, with Stern and Bill Evans and um, Foster, Ron Foster and drums. I mean, I saw them on that tour, the the, the We Want Miles tour. And it, was, it was great. Cool. If there's one song that you wish you wrote, what would it be? I wish I'd wrote, I wish I'd written uh, For No One by The Beatles. I love it. Wow, man. That's great, dude. That's great. Well, brother, I thank you so much for hanging with me, man. I'm just so happy to see you and, and catch up with you a bit and get to know more about you. And yeah, me and this guy have gone, you know, many, many miles. Years, many years. miles. And yeah, and I love it, man. It's just one of my favorite people on the planet. This is Chris Duarte, everybody. Thank you, my bro. Thank you, Ken. I love you, Ken. I love your family. All right. Well, that's about it, everybody. I want to thank my special guest this week, my dear, dear friend, Chris Duarte. Truly one of the greatest guitar players out there. Man, and you, you heard it here. You heard it here, that dedication, the passion, all the time that he takes practicing. And, of course, he's the biggest road dog I know, hardest working guy in this business. Go check out his music on all the platforms. Go see him live. You will have your mind blown. I guarantee it. I also want to urge you guys to go check out my website, www.kenvaldez.com. Over there, you can find out about my music. You can find out more about the show. I got some merchandise. We got some tour dates coming in. I'd love to see you guys. Also, there's links to my social media. I love hearing from y'all, too. So drop me a line. I will get back to you. Also, if you like this show and you want to show a little bit of love, hey, I got something new for you this week. Our Patreon is back www.patreon.com slash Ken Valdez approach. Man, I got some cool stuff in the wings, man, for those of you that are wanting to uh, help out a little bit because it takes a lot of time, effort, and money to make sure that this show runs properly and to get guests like Chris Duarte on here. So uh, a little love goes a long, long way. Go check out our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Ken Valdez approach. That's about it, everybody. Until next time, be good to each other. Take care of one another. Bye-bye.